Good evening, folks, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. I'm Jeff Salzman. It's Tuesday, February 3rd, 2015, and I am coming to you, as always, from my home in Boulder, Colorado. I'm here tonight with Brett Walker, who is managing the call in the kitchen, and who just ran to the kitchen from my office. How you doing, Brett? Did you make it? Yes. We're on? Yeah, all is well. Cool. We're broadcasting on Mixler, and you can find that on dailyevolver.com, the homepage, or you can go to our Mixler account, just search for Daily Evolver, or you can uh, listen on the phone. Yeah, through the maestro number, right? Right. Yeah, all right. Well, we're, you know, continuing to try to, you know, expand the uh, ways that the Daily Evolver is being offered, so... Welcome to our friends on Mixler and who are listening through the web. And also to our friends in Texas, I want to wish you a happy Chris Kyle Day. Uh, this is the day that we honor America's deadliest sniper in the Iraqi war. It's official and for those of us in Texas or those of you in Texas. Of course, um, this is American Sniper's a big hit movie uh, directed by Clint Eastwood. Uh, starring Bradley Cooper, and it as has ignited some heat, and I, I also think light as well, in the culture wars between the left and the right, and I want to talk about that in a minute. But before we do, uh, as always, a word from our sponsor. I want to give a shout out to IntegralLife.com, who hosts this podcast, and where I originated it four years ago with David Reardon and Corey DeVos. Uh, and Integral Life is the main web portal for all things concerning the integral movement in the world and is the place where Ken Wilber uh, posts his latest work. Uh, and they are um, currently promoting their latest conference, which will be here in Boulder in March, called Return to the Heart of Christ Consciousness, which is an integral view of Christianity. And uh, I will be there, and you know I'm sure some of you will be there, and I encourage you to uh, check it out if you're interested. This Daily Evolver podcast is also available on iTunes and Stitcher, and of course it also appears along with additional postings and commentary on my blog called dailyevolver.com. You can leave messages for me, many of you do, I really appreciate it. Uh, there's an orange bar when you go to the dailyevolver.com website called SpeakPipe, and you can press that and leave me voice messages, and I will play them on the, the show often. I have one tonight, and I really enjoy hearing from you. Uh, I would also encourage those of you who are new to Integral or maybe looking for a little bit of a remedial um, boost, that there are a couple charts that are helpful that you can access if you link the link that is on the reminder email that reminded you of this call. So if you go to email, the, the email that reminded you of this call, there's a link that will connect you to the charts that will give you the altitudes of development and the quadrants of integral um, consciousness, which may help you. All right. So before we get into the main topic of tonight, 
I wanted to just take a look at something that happened this week in America that you may have heard of, even if you're not in America, and that is that we had our big Super Bowl, which is the championship football game that is played uh, at the end of the year. This last Super Bowl was the most watched television event of all time. Uh, over a third of all Americans were watching this thing. This is the Seattle Mariners versus the, or Seattle Seahawks, I'm sorry, good Lord, versus the um, New England Patriots. And uh, the, the Patriots won. But it's a big game. And, you know, that's about all I know about the game. I'm no football fan. But I watched the game, as many people do, as much for the ads as I do for the game itself. The Super Bowl ads, they're, they're really the Mount Everest of marketing in America. There's $8 million for a 60-second commercial. You get lots of extra attention. P people pay attention to Super Bowl ads uh, because uh, a lot of companies and organizations use the Super Bowl to debut a new product, new image, new campaign. They spend, you know, as I said, $8 million for 60 seconds. Uh, the, the creative minds, tons of research, social science, a feeling for the zeitgeist. It's really something. I mean, we, get, we get these 30-second and 60-second ads that are really little works of art that do their best to worm their way into our minds and hearts. And this year, there was a shift in the sort of the feeling, the vibration of the ads, which was quite remarkable. Um, they were far less raucous than normal and more emotionally resonant, more touching and on the heart level than ever before. And I see this as something that is really quite evolutionarily potent. This is something that has been um, commented on by many commentators. There was a, an article in the New York Times uh, that was entitled, Super Bowl commercials go for heart, not just funny bone. And they pointed out in that article that the Number one most popular commercial was by Budweiser, which was a 60-second ad uh, that showed a man being reconnected with his lost puppy. And, you know, went through all these machinations of Clydesdale horses and all of this sort of thing. But the basic storyline of the commercial was this hunky man being reunited with his lost puppy. That was the number one commercial of all of the, I think there's 46 of them. Um, there were ads by Nissan and Toyota that also lauded father, fatherhood and connection and family. And the spot that they gave a, a lot of attention to was a spot by Dove's Men's Soap that depicted a series of children from toddlers to adults calling out dad and daddy all through a father's life from a high chair, from monkey bars, from a dance floor at a wedding. And the final message of the ad was, what makes a man stronger? Showing that he cares. And this is, I think, a really interesting evolutionary leap forward, particularly for the NFL, which this year, this is the National Football League, which this year got a lot of bad PR uh, for its red underbelly, which is, you know, wife and child abuse. We all know the stories. And so advertisers and the NFL in general sort of took a 
pro-family, pro-fatherhood kind of approach to um, this year's ads that I think is, again, evolutionarily potent. It also was evident in commercials about women. In the New York Times, they pointed out that Procter & Gamble's Always Feminine products, which I don't know much about, but they're products called Always Feminine. And they ask both adults and little girls what it means to run like a girl and throw like a girl. And the older adults show this sort of um, mincing, uh, you know, overly feminine kind of ineffective throwing and running. While if you ask these little eight-year-old or nine-year-old girls what it is to run and throw like a girl, it's not like they showed Serena Williams or some, you know, female Olympic athlete, but they show these little girls running for their lives, uh, throwing as hard as they could, not necessarily skillfully, but with all their heart. Again, this is why we sum up the Super Bowl commercials as being far more heartfelt this year than in previous years. As I said, I think it's evolutionarily potent because we know that one of the ways forward evolutionarily is that we take these indestructible poles that seem to be just sort of cosmically there, like the difference between masculine and feminine. And the evolution of masculine and feminine isn't that masculine becomes ever more masculine in sort of a simple-minded way, but that masculine becomes more evolved by taking on the qualities of what was typically feminine. So we have men who are caring, men who are responsive, men who are um, emotional and are committed to taking care of their families. And we have women who are, you know, out there running and jumping and achieving. And, you know, we've made this point before in this show, but this is, I think, a really, really interesting emergent in our culture. Okay, we'll look now at the story that I want to focus on tonight, which is really along the same lines, which is that the right and the left also represent an indestructible polarity, just as masculine and feminine do. The political left, the political right, also present a polarity where the movement forward is where one side integrates the best parts of the other side. And let me just use this movie, The American Sniper, as an example of that. And this is a hugely popular movie in America and around the world, I understand. And it is also hugely controversial. As I said, it's a movie by Clint Eastwood, stars Bradley Cooper. And it tells the story of, quote, America's deadliest sniper in the Iraqi war. And this is Chris Kyle, who did four tours of duty in the Iraq war. He's credited with more kills. That is 165, quote, confirmed kills, and another 95 claimed kills, which from the website is explained as a claimed kill refers to a shot where the round hits the target, but we cannot confirm the kill. 
So let me stop there and let our liberal blood curdle over the fact that there's such a thing as a count of, quote, kills, that such distinctions are even made, and that racking up a high number of kills, and that is human beings that you trained your rifle on, you sighted, and you shot, and this makes you a hero and a legend, and that there is a pride and even a joy in killing. And of course, this is just sort of naturally repulsive to liberals, not so much to conservatives. And we'll get to that. What happens when we move into a green or the postmodern level of development, and you can see this on your chart if you downloaded it, is that postmodernity requires that we at least try to take on the perspective of the person that we're fighting with, or, you know, in extreme cases, killing. And this is the green critique. This is the liberal critique of the movie American Sniper, is that it fails on just this account. It doesn't consider the humanity of the people it's fighting and killing, the Iraqis. It doesn't consider the motivations, their context, the fact that they love their families and value their lives as much as we love our families and love our lives. And it's true. From an integral perspective, we understand this green view. We, too, crave to know as much as we can about other people in general. I mean, that's one of the projects of Integral, is that we get really, really curious about other people, because we realize that they're different than we are. This is new in second-tier realization. First-tier sees people as being either the same as they are or somehow defective versions of themselves. At Integral, we deeply get that people have different operating systems. And we want to include them, no matter who they are, particularly if we're fighting with them. I mean, that's even more you know, important, that we include them in our circle of moral consideration and that we you know, give them the same status that we give our own selves and our own people. That's one of the things we want to do as integralists. We want to get that green critique of this, you know, American sniper ethos. And at the same time, we also want to get curious about the ethos itself that American sniper is promoting. And that is the world of the traditionalists. If you're looking at our chart of development, the amber stage of development, the amber altitude of development. And these are the conservatives, the Republicans in the United States. And these folks have the position that, yes, indeed, killing enemies in war is something to be proud of and even something to enjoy and take pride in. At the traditional level of development, it makes sense because life in general is seen as a colossal battle between the forces of good and evil at traditional. This is that pre-modern amber stage of development. And we, our people, are on the right side, thank goodness. We are the chosen people of God. We have a blessed way of life. And we are, 
and this is always the case in the traditional stage of development, we're under attack by the forces of darkness. All pre-modern religions believe this. Uh, pre-modern Americans and pre-modern Iraqis, and this is what we see in Iraq, of course. So it's for this reason that for the vast majority of human history, people have found killing to be deeply fulfilling. Uh, killing an animal in a hunt meant that we and our progeny got to eat for that day or for the next couple of days. It's deeply, sweetly fulfilling. Uh, and the kill of another human being, especially if they were an enemy, it just made us that much safer. There are few things so sweet, especially when it matters, when it really matters that you and your family will be safer and that you have created a world where your God can reign. You know, where the world, the enchanted world of your people and your God is safe from the forces of darkness. This is, this is the, you know, the essence of the traditionalist American sniper view. There's a scene in the movie where we flash back to a scene from Chris Kyle's childhood. And uh, they're at the dinner table, and his very traditional father is giving them a lesson on the fact that in this world, there are sheep, there are wolves, and there are sheepdogs. And how precious it is to have sheepdogs. Those that are, and, and I love the way he put it, he said, those who are, quote, blessed with the gift of aggression, unquote. So the sheepdog can protect the flock from those who would do, do it harm. And this, you know, if from an integral perspective, I would point out this is an you know, appropriate stage of development for both individual people, you know, this idea that, you know, it's not just sheeps and wolves, or sheep and wolves. <laughs> uh, that's red. Red is, you know, predator and prey. When we get to amber stage of development, we bring in, you know, the transcendent good, the laying down of rules. And this is where we have the sheepdogs. So this is actually quite evolutionarily potent. So as integralists, we do our best to appreciate this. We do our best to get over our green repulsion of the whole scenario and to explore the reality of the traditionalist mind and heart and body. And we also say in Integral that every perspective is both true and partial. So we look at what's the piece of the truth that the traditionalists bring in. Is there something that is actually worth fighting for and dying for? And yes, even killing for. And this is the message of American Sniper. The movie makes no claim one way or the other regarding the rightness or wrongness of the Iraqi war. Uh, that's not the motivator. Uh, the motivator is protecting one's brothers and one's homeland. And this gets to another point of this movie that also mystifies my liberal friends. And that is, how do our leaders, our, our venal 
mendacious leaders continue generation after generation to get young men and now young women to march off to combat? And the answer to that question is, you know, surprising, but simple. And that is that these people don't march off to combat for their leaders. They actually don't even march off to combat for their homeland. They march off to combat for each other. This is just one of the markers of, of warrior consciousness, of that red stage of development, is that there is a delicious bond between warriors that actually has no equivalent in the modern world. Chris Kyle talked over and over again of his fellow soldiers as his brothers, as being his brothers. And you think of the terminology itself. Brothers means related by blood. And at this point, we are accessing tribal bonds. I mean, not only red, but even magenta, tribal bonds here. And I, I heard this from a cousin-in-law, actually, a, a, a soldier who had been in combat. He was now home. He's a family man. He has four kids who's experienced both combat and family life. And he talked about this. He said that the love that these soldiers have for each other, for their brothers, is the equivalent of the love that a parent feels for a child. Although, as he pointed out, it's not the same thing as a love that a child feels for his parent. So that's an interesting difference. What's the difference here? What's the difference between a love that a parent feels for the child and the love that a child feels for the parent? And this, it's simple. In the case of the parent for the child, the parent would die for the child, not the other way around. So imagine this. Imagine this kind of intensity of love that is writ large to groups of 8 or 10 or 12 or 20. And these are these fighting units. It's a delicious container. And it explains why some people are drawn back for, you know, well, in Chris Kyle's case, in the American Sniper, he was drawn back to four tours of combat in Iraq. He was shot twice. He was involved in a couple IED uh, incidents. And still he chose that over his beautiful wife and young family back here in the States. So, you know, that's powerful. That joy in killing the enemy. The pride in protecting the tribe. And if this movie, American Sniper, didn't go any further than this, it would be an unremarkable movie. It would be, you know, at the developmental level of your typical John Wayne movie. Think Green Berets. But this is not where the movie stopped. Key to the movie, American Sniper, and indeed co-equal to the plot of combat, was the story of the stress of the war on the families back home and on the soldiers themselves after they were out of the combat arena. As I mentioned a minute, minute ago, Chris Kyle was drawn back time and time again to the war. This is what the movie was, one of the things the movie was about, drawn back to the war, you know, for to avenge his brothers and 
to get this one guy and, you know, this revenge. I mean, it's all this red stuff. He was drawn back to that over his family. And we saw, you know, many scenes of his wife and marriage and meltdown. Uh, we also saw many scenes of hospitals where wounded soldiers were played by soldiers with real injuries. Uh, the guy missing a hand and two legs was not the product of a Hollywood makeup job. Chris Kyle's brother, uh, typical sort of shell-shocked character, was especially touching. This was a big part of the movie, the collateral damage of the war uh, on the families and on the soldiers themselves. And in fact, one of the messages of the movie is that Chris Kyle himself found ultimate peace and a healing of his own PSTD in helping fellow veterans. He volunteered with them in teaching them how to shoot better in shooting ranges. And I think from my green perspective, good Lord, enough with the shooting already. Can't you, you know, whatever, people get enough shooting. But, you know, there they are. And that's still very meaningful to them. And, you know, it's a little bit of a struggle for me to get that one. I would also say that one of the differences between this movie and a typical Amber movie is that um, the Iraqis, you know, for the most part, they were seen as the, you know, traditional enemies. They were depersonalized. They were shadowy. They were treacherous. But we also saw scenes that humanized them, uh, particularly the scene where uh, Chris Kyle's company has dinner with an Iraqi family. And it shows the suffering of this family and particularly the impossible double binds that our presence and their country put them in. So this is where this movie, I think, represents an evolutionary movement forward in the right. I mean, this movie was clearly meant, this book, Chris Kyle himself, Chris Kyle Day in Texas, this is for traditionalists. This is for God and country people. But there is a integration of sensitivity and of world centrism, even, in this movie that marks it as something different than your typical John Wayne, you know, go get him, Amber movie. I think that this is um, part of what we could notice as an integration of the best of postmodern or liberal values of sensitivity. You know, the whole therapeutic worldview is, is basically green that is brought into this basically amber movie that represents an evolutionary movement forward. All right. So um, let me know what you think. Uh, at the um, end of the call tonight, we'll have an opportunity for those of you who are interested to, you can press one and we can hear your comments and questions and talk about it. So the next story I want to talk about is, uh, I think, in the same category. It's, it's a, a story that uh, illuminates the <laughs> movement, the evolution of the right of the conservative poll in American politics. Let me set the stage for the story. Imagine, if you will, it's, you know, some evening after work, you're watching Fox News. <laughs> no, I said this is a fantasy. 
So, you know, I don't really expect that you've done this, but you go with me here. Uh, so, you know, there's one of the blonde bimbo newscasters on Fox News, and she's hosting Dick Cheney, who is, of course, criticizing Obama's foreign policy, his Middle East policy, as being naive and misguided and dangerous. But this time, something goes off the script. The blonde anchor, and her name is Megyn Kelly, stops him. She stops him cold by saying, quote, but time and time again, history has proved that you got it wrong in Iraq, sir. Time and time again, history has proved that you got it wrong in Iraq, sir. And this isn't just a liberal fantasy of some Fox version of Howard Beale. This really happened last June. Uh, John Stewart showed the clip on the Today Show over and over, actually, and even did a little happy dance at his desk. But we should have known this Megyn Kelly is getting a little attention for stepping out of line in the Fox lineup. Uh, this Cheney incident in June wasn't the first time she did this, as you know, we liberal Fox watchers well know. Uh, for a lot of liberals, actually, Megyn Kelly gets a certain kind of a pass because of something that happened on election night 2012 when Barack Obama beat Mitt Romney for the presidency. This is, of course, a big night in American politics every four years. It's the, you know, the, either the re-election of the president, Obama, for another four years, or is his defeat by the challenger Mitt Romney. It's a big deal, especially for the loyal Fox audience. And so it's election night. Um, this is the night that Barack Obama was going to get his comeuppance for the Fox viewer. He was going to be rejected by the voters as a failed president, forever assigned to the bottom shelf of accidental one-term presidents. And, you know, Fox viewers deeply believed this. They were ready with their popcorn. Because for months, they had been fed this long line of conservative-oriented polling, which was led by Karl Rove. And Karl Rove, of course, was George Bush's brain, they called him. He was the poll pollster for George Bush that showed that, you know, Mitt Romney was sure to win. He was a, uh, Karl Rove is a, is a contract commentator on Fox News. So here it's election night. It's getting late. And... For some reason, it's not looking good for Romney, and it's therefore not looking good for Karl Rove. And it was time to call the election results for Ohio, which is, of course, the swingiest of all the swing states. This was the do-or-die moment for the election. And Megan Kelly's hosting Karl Rove, and it's time to call Ohio. And the Fox News analysts call Ohio for Obama. This basically wins the election for Obama. At this point, I'll turn the narrative over to Jim Rutenberg, who wrote an article for the cover of the New York Times magazine uh, called Fox News Wants You. Yeah, you. Can Megyn Kelly make Fox News appeal to people who, well, read the New York Times? And here's how he described that fateful night in uh, 2012 in, in, with uh, Karl Rove. He says, this is the Megan moment that made her career with Carl Rove on election night, 2012. She was co-anchor 
of the election evening coverage. By 10 p.m., as the Republican hopes for the presidency were starting to dim, Karl Rove was on the Fox News, News set, insisting that Romney still had a chance. She said, quote, Is this just the math that you do as a Republican to make yourself feel better, or is it real? Rove would not back down. At 11.13 p.m., Fox declared Ohio, and thus the election, for Obama. Rove disputed the call, running through his own numbers from the bellwether precincts. Kelly began laughing and deadpanned. That's awkward. Ailes was prepared, of course. Intentionally or not, Rove was speaking for a portion of the Fox News audience that found the results inconceivable, in part because many Fox News hosts and guests had questioned polls that predicted it. Fox producers had rehearsed the live walk to the decision desk, the conference room where Fox's election analysts did their work three days earlier. Around 11.30 p.m., with Carl Rove still hanging on to hope, Roger Ailes, who is the head guy at Fox, called the control room and told producers to send Kelly in. And this is Megyn Kelly. Megyn Kelly's command of the moment was total. She waved at producers, on-air colleagues, and stagehands, goading her cameramen to keep coming and smiling broadly. And when she finally reached the decision desk, she had the numbers crunchers tick through all the reasons Rove, who once called himself the keeper of, quote, the math, unquote, was wrong. Totally, inexorably, hopelessly wrong. This moment has been endlessly cited, in part because it was so freighted. Here was perhaps the most hated man in liberal America being humiliated in what should have been his home turf. And here was his beautiful and merciless mistress, tormentor, Megyn Kelly, confounding expectations about her network. And of course, the next day, this was like big, this was huge for us liberals. And the next day on John Stewart, it was so great. After showing a replay of Kelly's performance, Stewart, John Stewart told his audience, quote, did you see it? Did you record it? Did you TiVo it? Because you can play it backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards all day long, like I did today. <laughs> so, you know, this is something new in Fox in, in the last year or so. And again, I'll continue with Jonathan Rutenberg's piece in the New York Times. He says, for those unfamiliar with the phenomenon, he calls it a Megan moment. It's when you, a Fox guest, you're maybe a regular guest or even an official contributor, are pursuing a line of argument that seems perfectly congruent with the Fox worldview, only to have Kelly seize on some part of it and call it out as nonsense, maybe even turn it back on you. You don't always know when, how, or even if the Megan moment will happen. Her political sensibility and choice of subjects are generally in keeping with that with the network at large. And I would emphasize that. She's basically a conservative. But you always have to be ready for it, no matter where you are. And he goes on, one last paragraph, he says, the Megan moment has upended 
the popular notion of how a Fox News star is supposed to behave and has led to the spectacle of a Fox anchor winning praise from the very elites whose disdain Fox has always welcomed. In the process, Kelly's program has not just given America's top-rated channel its biggest new hit in 13 years, it's demonstrated an appeal to younger and more ideological diverse demographics that Fox needs as it seeks to claim even more territory on the American journalism political landscape. And this is, I think, really explains the, the evolution in action here. And this is where a moral orange, the greed of orange modernism, trumps the ideological of amber traditionalism. Basically, orange is motivated by getting more, as we used to say, asses and eyeballs on the set. You want more and more people watching you. This is what the business of the news is all about. You, you sell eyeballs to advertisers. And what Fox has realized is that 84% of people who are consistently conservative, according to Pew Research, already watch Fox News. 84% of conservatives already watch it. But what they also realize is that 37% of their audience holds views that the Pew Research calls ideologically mixed. That is one in three. And that means one in three of Fox viewers cuts somewhere across ideological lines. For example, they support same-sex marriage, but oppose new restrictions on gun ownership. This is where Fox News needs to grow. They're looking for what they have identified now as Fox News independence. And unlike the hardcore Fox News Republicans, these independents are less ideologically reliable. And this, my friends, is cultural evolution in action. This is how the right takes on, again, the best qualities of the left, you know, a sensitivity a world centrism, and an orientation towards rationality and facts that trumps the ideological conservatism, religious, uh, ethnocentric sensibilities or the ethos of their traditionalist followers and actually moves them along. And um, this is evolution. This also happens from the left as well. The left evolves by taking on the best qualities of their ideological enemies on the right. And I think one of the best examples of that is the tremendous success of gay rights in our culture in the last 20 years, and gosh, particularly our, the last five years. You know, I, I've been part of that. I've, you know, I, I, gay, I'm 60 years old, gay. I was gay in the 70s. And I remember the gay rights movie of, movement of the 70s. It felt, it felt like what we were fighting for was the freedom to wear feather boas and leather chaps. You know, we just needed to be seen. That was fair enough. And that served our purposes at that time. 
but eventually we had to mature. And and what did we do when we really wanted to get traction politically in the culture? We went to the right. We adopted as our own uh, two pillars of traditionalism, marriage and the military. Uh, the gay rights struggle became the right to serve in the military and the right to be married, two conservative values. Now, we did this both naturally in terms of our own development. I think, you know, this wasn't calculated necessarily, but I think it was also calculated politically, strategically, in terms of what we figured would get, uh, you know, be a compelling argument uh, to society at large. So um, I just want to point out that the way forward, we, 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 we talk about the polarities in American politics. And from an integral perspective, polarity is part of the, you know, engine of evolution. That we have a thesis and an antithesis. We have masculinity and femininity. We have the left, conservatism and liberalism. People with their foot in the brake and people with foot, their foot in the gas. And these are indestructible polarities that are just part of life. And they will always be there, presumably. But the way forward is when each of them begin to take on the best qualities of the other. And by doing so, create a new synthesis that then seeks out a new antithesis. And, you know, for those of us who have some, you know, knowledge of Hegel and uh, the dialectic, that is the engine of evolution. All right. So, um, wow, that was 48 minutes that <laughs> went by quickly. So, Brett, are we, um, we have a couple questions or um, do we have the, the, the one? Yeah, we do. Let me yeah. Get back to my yeah. Station. You bet. All right. Yeah, I get a number of questions on SpeakPipe and email. And again, thank you so much. And I want to feature a question that came in from John in LA that hits this issue that is up really just this last week, and that is the issue of vaccinations in America. And this, you know, hits the same territory that we're talking about. Let me just set it up a little bit. I'm playing just an excerpt of, of what John left on SpeakPipe. And he's, you know, torn. He's a young parent. He has a, a little daughter. And he's torn between the retro-romantic view of the idea that vaccinations could actually harm the immune system and the more modern orange view that, you know, his child could contract a serious preventable disease. And he lives in a uh, kind of a green enclave in L.A., uh, as I do in Boulder, and you know the, the 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 physics are a little different here in these in in these green enclaves, and so he'll describe it. And Brett, play it when you're ready. As a parent, I'm I'm left to really ponder this kind of conundrum here about what what to do, what's best for our child. You know, this anti-vaccine view. Uh, does seem to suggest a retro-romantic kind of an approach, you know, back to 
almost a red back to nature approach that um, when I think of it that way, I, I have to wonder if maybe, maybe there's a, a better way. The vaccine approach is, you know, a very orange oriented approach where there's kind of um, a faith in the infallibility of these big institutions such as Merck, Pfizer, the CDC, etc. And my green sensibilities certainly don't go along with that very easily. So in an attempt to try to find an integral solution, I kind of find myself stuck almost as if I was faced with a, a koan here. The problem is that uh, I don't have six years to ponder this and, and uh, come up with this, this great solution because my child is, is, is here and, and needs me to, to act or, or do something. He's talking about the dilemma he's in with whether or not he vaccinates his child because he's in this you know, green environment where he has a doctor who is uh, you know, making the case that vaccinations actually hurt the immune system and faced with the orange science that shows that uh, it really eliminates these diseases. I think that what we have here is in some ways, the worst of both worlds. I know in Colorado, we have the lowest immunization rate in all of the 50 states. That's 82% for measles. And it's um, a result of the wacky right down in Colorado Springs. You know, this is the military religious right that has an allergy to anything that is done by the government. And the loony left here in Boulder, which is allergic to anything that is carried out by the pharmaceuticals or Merck or the CDC. And, um, you know, that works for a while as long as there is a certain number of people who are um, immunized and people who are not immunized can sort of hang out in that safe circle until there are subcultures that, you know, sort of don't reach that critical mass that they call herd immunization. So this is where orange or science really gets to fight both ways towards the left, the sort of liberal anti-vaccine, back to nature, retro romantics, and the right and people who, you know, distrust anything the government does. And this again is where Megyn Kelly and, and even Shepard Smith, which is the noon anchor on Fox News, have been really pushing for the scientific view. Uh, as she said, this is going to be a big issue for politicians going forward because it's about Big Brother. Uh, on one hand, uh, some things require that Big Brother actually is online. That's a big statement coming from somebody at Fox News that Big Brother, the involvement of Big Brother, the involvement of government is, is, is sometimes required here. I got to say that I don't have any kids. I've been immunized all my, myself already. But if I did, I would probably get it done. And um, if there's anybody who has any insights into this that maybe uh, 
John and I don't, uh, please share them. Okay, let's take any questions we have. If, if you have any questions or comment, press one. Okay. Hey, Joe. Hi, Jeff. I, um, I guess it's more of an answer, I guess, to your question about the vaccines. I've been thinking about this a lot uh, because of this, you know, so front in the news. But I think the science is pretty sound and clear in favor of vaccines, um, as, as you seem to be saying, too. But I think that the problem is um, there really is a valid reason to distrust, you know, the, the, the orange traditional sciences because they have misled us so many times before. And there clearly are things going wrong in our environment, but I, I don't think it's vaccines. I think it's, it's other things possibly pharmaceutically related, uh, cleaning products related, that sort of thing. So, but there really is a valid question of, of who is doing good science and who isn't. Yeah, well, you know, I am suspicious of the green view uh, that sort of privileges everything, quote, natural, as long as it doesn't have anything to do with human beings. The fact is human beings are a function of nature too. And that the intelligence that we bring to the party has, you know, I just saw this cartoon in the New Yorker uh, where it shows these two kind of, you know, pre-modern people, cavemen, whatever, sitting there talking. And the one guy saying, you know, I don't get it. You know, we eat all free range meat. We have no stress. We, you know, everything's completely organic. Uh, there's no global warming. The air is clean. The water is clean. And we're still just living to be 30. And I'm, of course, mangling the, the joke. But the point is real, is that actually things that have unnat unnatural have helped us move forward. And, you know, one of them is medicine, if you want to call that unnatural. Again, I would call anything that human beings create uh, as being natural in the sense that human beings are part of nature. So I don't make that distinction uh, that I think that a lot of green people make that, you know, wants to take us back to the days be before the alphabet or before technology, where, you know, we were in particular, some, you know, presumably in some golden era. I just don't see it. All right. Any other questions or comments? Yeah, we have a question from Bill. Hey, Bill. What's going on? Yes, thank you. I think it's very interesting the way you, you bring up the notion of uh, uh, that we can be suspicious of orange. Uh, and when I think of uh, some newer vaccines like the Zostervax or the polio, I'm not the uh, pneumococcal vaccine, uh, I'm not sure how effective those are, and I think that there is a great deal of profit in those. So I think that you're right, that there can be some uh, valid suspicion of orange. Um, however, when it comes to measles, mumps, and rubella, um, the type of birth defects that women would get if they were if they were uh, exposed to those uh, viruses uh, while they were pregnant. Um, it's just insane not to vaccinate these people. Yeah. 
it, it just is insane. No, uh, clearly there there are some vaccines that have been proven uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, measles and polio and so forth, that, you know, these are good things for humanity. People ought to do them. I do understand that these days, however, while I wasn't paying attention, there are a lot more vaccines that, you know, people are being asked to take. I also would notice that there's an impulse in Orange to make money on vaccines. And so, you know, I'm not just going to take um, a, a knee-jerk uh, view of all vaccines are good because I want to factor that in. I mean, we just saw this morning in the New York Times. I was shocked to see this, actually. I, I thought we were doing better than this. But they did a um, uh, an analysis of herbs, like, you know, St. John's Wort and Golden Seal and all of these herbs that are sold by companies like GNC, Target, Walmart, um, uh, and um, and one of the big drugstores, I'm forgetting which one, but these products had none of the quality or none of the, the, the ingredients that were advertised. So these herbs had like, um, you know, radish powder and um, nuts and uh, wheat and, you know, just fillers. And in many cases had zero of the actual herbs and medicines that they were promising. So, you know, we don't want to have a, 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 an unregulated uh, orange system. It's, it, this was a perfect example of how that can run amok into just, you know, plain old fraud. I was, as I said, again, shocked by this. So, you know, this is the big story of the week, measles. We have, I think, 688 cases. Uh, late, latest I checked, this is, uh, you know, s small potatoes in terms of, you know, an actual uh, danger to the culture. But I don't critique it as people being overly responding or reacting to these cases. I think this is good news because, you know, these small number of cases actually raises a red flag that gets us talking about these things and acting on these things and caring about these things. And this is, again, uh, one of the engines of evolution. Hey, you want to take a shot at something? Maybe this is for a future show, um, but Mark Steele on Mixler was saying that um, he, he was wondering, uh, how does one explain or share the stages of development with someone who has no idea about them? He says, it's a constant challenge for me, especially for people I identify as having a red world view. They get pretty offended when they realize they are, quote, lower than most folks. How to share the concept without offending with compassion? So that, that might be something for future shows, but it's a great question, huh? Yeah, it is. And, you know, the short answer is almost nobody is ready to hear that about stages of development. Most first-tier structures think that they are the epitome of where humanity ought to be. So, you know, trad traditionalists think that everybody ought to get religious and accept their God, and then the world will be okay. Uh, modernists think that everybody ought to get rational, and then everything's going to be okay. And postmodernists think that everybody ought to realize that we're all together and we're all one on this, you know, spaceship Earth. 
And once we get that, everything's going to be okay. It's only an integral that we realize that all of those stages get to be there and that they actually get to be there, each of them thinking that they're the only one. <laughs> so you literally can't talk people into something. Well, uh, there's a, an old saying about God, and that is you can't talk people out of something they didn't talk themselves into in the first place. And that's what we're dealing with here. And so you don't even try. I mean, I don't try to talk to people that I perceive as being red or amber or orange or even green uh, in terms of um, cultural evolution, because, you know, that'll get me shouted out of the room. That will, uh, you know, bring an awkward silence to the average Boulder dinner party. So I, I learned to not talk about it, except with people who get it and care. And I think that's probably, the, you know, the best answer I have. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, uh, this is Jeff Salzman uh, ending uh, another Daily Evolver. And we will see you here next week, uh, Tuesday night, for the next installment. Have a great week. Keep it integral. And we'll see you then. Mm -hmm.